Well, good morning, everybody. And you should know the pastors in town, we were all texting each other trying to figure out, based on the NCAA basketball tournament, whether today's service would feel more like a party or a funeral. But we're all partying. Yeah? That's a, I mean, that's a good thing. The only thing, I did wake up last night at two in the morning with like a rematch MSU Michigan thing happening in my head, and it wasn't going my way, and I was like, ah, not again. So anyway, hopefully we will get to see that, and it will go my way this time, although it hasn't the last three. Anyway, uh, we are in the third week of a series called Fully Alive, and if you haven't been with us, just to briefly catch you up, uh, each week I've been beginning with a question, and it's a great question. We'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this. What if what God ultimately wants for your life is the same thing you ultimately want for your life? What if what God wants for you is ultimately the same thing you want for you? And, and if you're like most people, when you hear this, you think, well, that would be absolutely fantastic, but that isn't exactly the way I was taught to think about God especially if you grew up in church like I did. Because somewhere along the line, and often it's not something that's taught, it's just something you sort of catch. You get this image of God like he's a police officer in the sky, right? And he's looking down from heaven. He's watching and waiting for you to break one of his rules so he can pull you over. And that means something different depending on your, trans your tradition, right? Um, and sort of write you a citation, uh, so God is sort of against you doing the sorts of things that you want to do in your life. And what's fascinating, if you go to the New Testament, the accounts of Jesus' life and the accounts of the early church, you see that Jesus paints a very different sort of picture of God. And it's a picture that's a lot more hopeful. It's a picture that's a lot more inspiring. If you were to say to me, well, how, was, how would Jesus want us to think about the creator of heaven and earth? I would say he wants you to think of him as your heavenly father. And just like an earthly parent ultimately wants the best for their kids, and just like an earthly parent makes rules that their kids often don't like, is it just me, right? Uh, but ultimately, we want our kids to thrive. And the same thing is true of your heavenly father. In, in fact, so much so that he sent Jesus among us as one of us to actually model for us what it looks like to be fully alive in this life. An early Jesus follower named John records something Jesus said along these lines one day 2,000 years ago. He said this. Jesus said, I have come that they, meaning people, may have life and have it to the full. Full tilt, full color, abundant life. That's why Jesus came and that's what he models for you and me. And so when we follow his example, one step at a time, we learn a new way to be human. A new way to be human in the here and now. And it's the way that resonates with the way God designed for us to live. And when we take those steps, we move in the direction of being more fully alive. And so in this series, what we're doing for five weeks leading up to Easter is we're looking at five different ways that we human beings, lovable as we are, have a tendency to steal potential from our lives. And so we're looking at five different ways this happens and also what to do if you're in service and you experience one of these things. You go, I've had enough. I want to move away from this thing. I want to move back towards the way God would want me to live. What do you do if that's where you are this morning at the end of the talk? So um, today we get to talk about the toxic nature of guilt. Doesn't that sound great? 
Woo! Yeah, maybe it's just me. Okay. Um, again, as well as what to do if you are here this morning and you realize I've had enough guilt and I want to move beyond it. Uh, to get us going, here's a definition of guilt, not that you need one, from our friends at dictionary.com. Uh, here's what they say. Uh, guilt is a feeling of responsibility or remorse for some offense or violation. You did something and this something hurt somebody else. Maybe it's something you said. Maybe it's a choice you make. Maybe it's a habit you got into that you shouldn't have, but it created a sort of debt-debtor relationship with somebody, and you experience this debt as guilt. You would, when you think about this person, or when you run into them at Meyer or Aldi, or Target, or wherever you do your grocery shopping, right? You see them, and something inside of you thinks, I owe them. I owe them. I took something that was theirs. I mean, I didn't literally take something, but like I stole potential for life from them. I, I, I did something and it crashed a key relationship. And so they're not getting the life experience that they, really, that they really should have had or even that they really deserve. And it's my fault. I owe them. Uh, that's how we experience guilt. But, but guilt is even more sinister because, and maybe you've had this experience, Guilt can often affect relationships that have nothing to do with the original guilt. I've been a pastor now for 20 years, and, and I think of friends who have had choices that they made during relationships in college that end up affecting their marriage. I, I think of friends that are in the business world that, that did something in three or four businesses ago that they still carry with them, and it impacts the relationship they have with the people that they employ. It's like the bottom line is as long as you and I have unresolved guilt, it impacts our lives. It keeps us from living the life that God created us to live. And that's why your heavenly father has revealed how to deal with your guilt. And his prescriptive remedy revolves around the word that Randy hinted at right at the top of our time together. And that word is confession. Now, confession means something different to you depending on your background. But whatever your background, you probably think of confession as something between you and God. Now, what I want to do for a second here is pick on some Catholic friends and then pick on some Protestant friends. This is an all skate. Okay, so whatever your background, hang with me. You're all going to get picked on. Okay, if you grew up Catholic, then confession was part of a sacrament you were taught called penance. And because I love you, I spent some time reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church this week. A little light reading, right? Um, and here's how they sort of explain confession and penance. Uh, they say the purpose of the sacrament, the purpose and effect of the sacrament of penance, confession, is reconciliation with God. In other words, you're going to confess something that has kind of got you sideways with God. And the way it works uh, in the Catholic tradition um, is that Basically, you would go and sit with a priest, maybe behind a veil or whatever, and you would confess whatever sins that you had done to this priest, and the priest acts as an agent of God. And then after you've confessed honestly and sincerely, then the priest would basically say, okay, now God has forgiven you. And the idea is that you would walk out free from the guilt. And, and that's, a, that's a great thing. And it's your reality, perhaps, until you find yourself sinning again, maybe even in the same way, and maybe you're sitting again with the same priest and confessing the same thing and receiving the same forgiveness. And so I, I spoke to a few Catholic friends this week as I prepared. And one of them said this. They said, it's not that it's a bad system. It just, it just doesn't lead to lasting change. He said, it's almost like confession is a religious game we play with God. And again, if you're Catholic and your defense is just went up, hang with me. No, I'm going to pick on the Protestants. Okay. 
if you were, if you were Protestant, um, then you were taught that you didn't need to go to a priest. You could go to God directly. But then from there, the story unfolds very similarly. You would tell God what you did um, and that you were genuinely sorry. And then God would forgive your sins. And, and that sounds great too. But as my Protestant friends confessed to me this week, they often find themselves needing to confess the same sin over and over and over again. Once again, it's not that confessing to God is a bad thing. It just doesn't seem to be that effective. Or you might say it this way, the Protestant rules of the confession game are a bit different, but the outcome is largely the same. Apart from momentary relief from feelings of guilt, not much changes. And so with this understanding, it should not surprise us that there is a bit more to confession than most of us have experienced. And and let me explain. Uh, When the New Testament writers talk about confession— So those accounts of Jesus' life, the letters of the early church, they aren't primarily talking about coming clean with God. Rather, they're talking about confessing to other flesh and blood human beings. Now, that actually makes sense if you think about it. We tend to think that we'll get rid of guilt by telling God what we did, but God already knows what we did, right? I mean, he knows when we're sleeping, and he knows when we're awake, And he knows when we've been bad or good. Wait, no, that was the other guy we tend to imagine with a big white beard, right? Yeah, yeah, but you you get my point. Um, True confession isn't about a secret conversation between you and God. Rather, it's something you enter into in which you begin maybe by apologizing to God, but then you go to apologize to the people that you actually hurt. People who can hold you accountable to make the changes you need to make. And, and, a, and a whole bunch of us are like, okay, pastor guy, that makes sense. But let's be honest, that's harder and scarier and exponentially more complicated, right? Because if this pulls out of my thought life and into my real world, that might actually change some stuff. And that's exactly the point. It, it's how you activate positive change in your life. It's how you become more fully alive. I had a friend recently who had a knee replacement. Not a lot of fun, right? But what he described is that the years leading up to the knee replacement were years of carrying chronic pain. Every step he took hurt. And he said, when I went to surgery, it hurt a lot more, right? But it hurt for a shorter period of time. And the hope is on the other side of the surgery, there's actually healing. Confession works in very much the same way. And so it shouldn't surprise us not only that the concept of confessing to other people shows up in the Bible, but there are actually examples of it in the New Testament. And what I want to do is share with you one of my favorites. It comes from the life of Jesus. Um, And he's about midway through his time with his disciples, those first 12 that followed him to learn this new way of life. And uh, he's near, near the peak of his popularity. So wherever Jesus went, crowds assembled. And this day we find him in a city called Jericho. It's about 17 miles, largely downhill from the city of Jerusalem. And it's one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world. And based on my experience back in January, it has some of the best falafel in the whole Middle East. So you heard it here. But uh, Jesus is surrounded by people who want to hear him teach and they want to see him work miracles. And among the crowds, we learn that there is a man named Zacchaeus who has a very specific job in the community. He's a tax collector. And you should know that that's an important detail because in Jesus' day, most people hated tax collectors. 
They were Jewish people, but they were considered outcasts and far from God and traitors by fellow Jews. They weren't allowed to visit the temple in Jerusalem. Their mamas weren't proud of them. Their grandmamas weren't proud of them. Generally, their only friends were other tax collectors. And here's why. Uh, the Roman Empire ruled the world in the first century. And in order to collect taxes, they would allow people that lived in their various provinces to bid on the right to collect taxes. And Rome would establish a baseline tax rate, but if you were the one that was charged by Rome with collecting, you could collect what they wanted and then however much extra you wanted for you, and the Roman military stood behind you. So these tax collectors, including Zacchaeus, had spent their lives enriching themselves off the backs of their neighbors. That's why they were hated. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, like everyone else, wants to see him. They've heard about him. But we also learned that Zacchaeus was a bit, how do we say this gently, vertically challenged. Okay? Some have called him a wee little man, right? That's the song, not me. Hold your emails. Okay, now, in order to see Jesus as he goes through town, he climbs up in a sycamore fig tree. What do they look like? I'm so glad you asked. This is a picture of the sycamore fig tree in the city of Jericho that Zacchaeus climbed up in. At least that's what the tourist guides tell you. <laughs> Around this particular sycamore fig tree, you will find wonderful people with nice cameras ready to take your picture with the sycamore tree. You'll notice I didn't do that. You can also get your picture if you want to pay $20 of you, a camel, and the sycamore fig tree. But that's only for the hardcore. That's how that goes. Okay. So Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree. Jesus notices him and does something really unexpected. He invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for lunch. And Zacchaeus would have been astonished. And so would the other people of Jericho. Because Jesus wasn't playing by their rules. See, no teacher sent from God should hang out with tax collectors and sinners. They were outsiders. They were outcasts. Again, not allowed in the temple. Nevertheless, Jesus went home with Zacchaeus that day. And I imagine them having lunch, and we have no idea what they talked about over lunch. But whatever it was, it made a huge impression on Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus was convicted about his lifestyle and decides to make an absolutely stunning change. Luke records uh, the account for us. Here's what Luke tells us happened. After lunch, Zacchaeus stood up and said to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And he isn't done yet. He says, and I've, I've cheated anyone, which is hilarious because tax collectors cheated everybody. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And we read that and we're like, wow, that feels a little bit extreme, right? I mean, why the sudden awakening of radical generosity? If you were there with a friend who said that, you'd be like, dude, you got to chill out here a second, right? What is going on? I have a theory. I can't prove it. But I suspect that Zacchaeus harbored inner turmoil and guilt about his vocation. Something deep within him secretly struggled with the economic hardships he was creating for his neighbors. And Zacchaeus, though, would have felt trapped in that reality because, well, he would have known that God wanted nothing to do with someone like him, and he would have been reminded of this reality constantly by the religious leaders who would teach against the sort of thing he was doing. He believed he had gone too far to be in relationship with God. He had gone too far. He had done too much. But see, Jesus comes and brings him another message, and it's a message that changed his life, and it's a message that still changes lives. And it goes like this. God never gives up on anyone, not even someone 
as despicable as a tax collector in Jericho. It's almost like whatever his past, Zacchaeus is invited and the word is repent to turn away from sin and to begin to follow God, to return to what God had in mind, to return to a relationship with God. And I imagine that realization sent a wave of emotion through Zacchaeus that led him to turn away from stealing and to make things right. Now, Zacchaeus says, uh, I'm not going to cheat anybody anymore. If I've, if I've cheated and stolen from anybody, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. Check out what Jesus says next, because this is amazing. He says this. He says, Zacchaeus, don't get carried away if. It is enough if, if that thou hast confessed thy sins to me in private, right? No, that's not what he says, right? But, but that's totally how we think. We think God and I had a private conversation. This is between him and I, so we're good. And God would say to us, uh, not exactly. You know, it's, it is between you and I, but it's also in between you and I and everyone that you've affected. And that's why confessing to me isn't going to do much for you. Let me show you what Jesus really says, because it's amazing. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. And there's a couple different ways to read that, right? Jesus may be talking about what happens on the other side of this life, but there is a very practical sense where Jesus is referring to what happened in Zacchaeus' heart as a salvation. He moved away from sin and towards the sort of life that God had in mind. He turned away from death and moved to life. He moved towards being more fully alive. And to that, Jesus would say, that is a sort of salvation. But just notice with me, Jesus doesn't say to Zacchaeus, you don't need to start paying people back. He doesn't say you don't need to start asking people if you've offended them. And he says, he doesn't say to him, you know, there's no need to make this public. Zacchaeus, the Zacchaeus story affirms something that deep down we all know to be true. And it's our big idea for today. It goes like this, genuine confession, like as in not just to God, but to other people, leads to genuine life change. Genuine confession leads to genuine life change. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, I feel like I need some of this genuine life change. Maybe there's something here for you. And maybe there's a step that you need to take. Here's why I think this is so true. If Zacchaeus is really going to give away half of his possessions and he's going to like sit down with everybody that he's cheated and paid them back four times what he stole, guess what Zacchaeus isn't going to do anymore? Steal from people, right? Because he's changed his ways and he's made things right. Genuine confession leads to genuine change. But here's where this gets really fun. That's only part of the power and potential of confession. Because there's another spot in a New Testament letter, and it's written by Jesus' brother James, that suggests an even greater potential for confession. Because if we're honest... Uh, Only some of our guilt comes from directly harming other people. Here's what James writes, and it's just really one verse. James writes, confess your sins to each other. So again, you see this like to other flesh and blood people, but James just says, confess your sins. And notice that the command is to confess sins in general. In other words, James isn't only suggesting that we confess our sins to the person who was offended by our sins, although that certainly falls under this uh, command. But he's also instructing followers of Jesus to confess their private sins to each other. And James' original audience would have felt the same way you and I feel when someone tells us to confess our private sins to one another. They would have had some thoughts like, James, you cannot imagine how complicated that will be for me. I mean, can't I make 
if it's just a private conversation between me and God, or for us, like me and a priest who barely knows me, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a lot easier. And if I start confessing my sins to people, I mean, James, buddy, they're going to realize I'm not perfect. That was a joke, right? Yeah. Plus, if they, if they don't reject me, then they may actually ask me about this thing again, and then I might actually have to change, which is the point. Genuine confession leads to genuine and positive life change. That's why it's the remedy for guilt that we feel for actions that have directly harmed another person. But it's also the remedy for the guilt we feel for the secret things that are indirectly harming people that they may not even realize. So this is how James concludes this verse. He says, confess your sins to one another. Look at this. So that you may be healed. So that you might move away from death and towards life. So you might tap into that potential that God has placed in your life. So that you wouldn't waste a bunch of energy carrying around a bunch of guilt that you really weren't designed to carry. I think when James wrote these words, he was advocating for honesty. He's telling followers of Jesus, listen, when you get together, and maybe not so much in a room like this, but when you get around a table like those big idea groups that Ryan was talking about, or maybe for you, you, know, you need to form your own big idea group. You need to grab a couple other people at church that are trying to follow Jesus. And, and you just that you already like, and you already know, and you're sitting around a circle. And, and you're like, you know, part of this is we're going to study the Bible and talk about where we're struggling and pray for our sick cat. It happens, right? But maybe part of it is we start getting a little more honest with one another about where we're struggling it's like James is saying, you know, to followers of Jesus, when you get together, be honest with one another. Few trusted friends who love God, who love you, don't go it alone when it comes to guilt. Because when you're honest with one another, I mean, this isn't brain surgery, you can help one another. And James knew something that many of us know from experience. When we carry secrets around with us, they weigh on us and they get worse over time. I mean, I, I said it this way, I found this in a book, I liked it. Secrets are like splinters which are awful, right? It's like you get that thing in your finger and you don't want to deal with it because it's going to hurt. But the longer you carry it, the worse things get. And the best thing to do is get the splinter out. It's like the best thing you and I can do with a secret sin that keeps happening over and over again. The thing that we keep apologizing to God for over and over again is to handle it in a way that leads to actual change and healing. Open up and be honest with somebody. Tell somebody who can help you. And by the way, if you're here and you have any experience at all in recovery support groups like AA and NA, I know what you're doing right now because I've talked to some of you. You're like, yes, because you get this, right? This, this is what these ministries are built around. You're screaming amen inside because you know something that many of us haven't figured out. There are habits and sin patterns that you can't break just by telling God about it. And it's not because there's anything wrong with God. It's just not how he designed it to work. There are habits and addictions that can't be broken by personal discipline alone. The real change begins when you open up and are honest with a flesh and blood person. Now, I struggled all week with how to land this talk. And let me tell you why. It is so easy to hear this material and go, yes, confession is critical. Yes, I should do it. Yes, I should find someone to help me. But I don't want to, right? And, and I get that. I get that. We never make the first step because it seems too hard. So we, we just keep confessing to God in private. We keep playing the confession game, doing the same thing, hoping that it gets better. And if that's you and you're here this morning, what I want to do is share an illustration that may help you reframe the situation and hopefully motivate you to begin to do what you know you need to do. I wanna, what I want to do for just a minute is show you how ridiculous the confession game looks to someone who isn't playing it. 
Okay, so here goes. And if it doesn't work, I told you in advance, it might not work. Here we go. Okay. I want you to imagine with me that you own a really hip coffee shop. This was a stretch for me, but okay. This, this is what I brought for an example. This is called The Wormhole. It's in Chicago. Uh, we have someone from our Y20 group who actually works there. It's super cool. If for no other reason than friends, do you see what's up here? That is a DeLorean, right? I mean, I'm sure the coffee's great, but I would just go look at the DeLorean. So anyway, um, imagine you have a hip coffee shop. You have hip employees who work for you, and they all seem to be great people. You have hip people who come and buy coffee from you, and even people like me. That was a joke. Okay, here we go, right? Nonetheless, you have a great team, but nonetheless, when you're reconciling the books every week, every week you notice there's like, there's money missing. A couple hundred bucks every week consistently is missing. And, and so you think, man, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this, but it feels negligent to just keep letting it go. So you install one of those little web security cameras by the register just to sort of see what's going on. And as you watch the, watch the footage, you learn that there is one of your wonderful hip employees is actually skimming off the top. And so you have a bit of a come to Jesus moment with them, right? And you confront them and they confess. And they say, it's me. It is me. I'm doing it. But before you get too upset, I want you to consider this. Okay. I'm a Christian. And I know I shouldn't steal. And every night, I pray to God to forgive me. In fact, last night, I prayed that God would forgive me for stealing the $192.12 I stole on Tuesday. Right? And moreover, before you get too mad, you should know that I plan to give some of it to my church because it's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. There you go. Now, if that's you and it's your hip coffee shop, how would you respond? You, you probably say what I would say. Like, that's completely ridiculous. It's like you're playing a game with God, some weird religious game, and you've sort of figured out that this is okay, but but, but it's not okay. And then that's why when you only confess to God and never change, you are playing a game. You're, you're in this rhythm of returning to the same sin over and over again, and you're stealing life from yourself and from, and, and from your family and from your friends, and your Heavenly Father wants more for you than that because He loves you. Even so, for many of us, the, the idea of genuine confession seems too daunting to try. So I want to try one more thing uh, before I let you go. Um, I want to make a suggestion um, and issue a challenge that might help you if you want to try something. What I would just ask is this. Would you consider just being honest when you pray to God about the sin? Just, just be honest with God. And here's what this might sound like. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I know better. I know I shouldn't. I'm sorry I'm doing it, but if I'm honest, I'm not sorry enough to quit. Nonetheless, I refuse to play the confession game anymore. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to quit this pattern of sin, but I want to want to quit. And that seems a little trite, but here's my thought. I think if you can just approach God honestly, and just say, God, I, I really have no intention of ending this relationship. I have no intention of getting out of this business. I have no intention of telling them the truth. But, but maybe if you're honest with God, it will begin to form a crack in your resistance because you'll start to see the, the duplicity in your life. And that might actually motivate you towards making an honest confession with somebody that can actually make a difference. I, I know why we don't do what we know we should do, Right? I, we fear that the consequences of confession are greater than the consequences of concealment. But the peace that we feel from concealment really is ultimately a false peace. 
Because the longer we carry guilt with us, the more it affects us. It's like the heavier the weight gets. When we do confess, the consequences are immediate and they're local, but the consequences of concealment can stretch out over a lifetime. So as we wrap up, just a couple of questions, super simple application if you're willing to consider it, but just, just to consider like, what do you need to confess? And who do you need to confess to? Like, what is it for you? Who is it for you? Is it something in your distant past? Is it something in your present? Is it for you something you hurt somebody directly and you really probably should write a note to them or schedule coffee with them or maybe text them or phone call them or whatever? Maybe for you it's that. Maybe for you it's, it's something private and you need to maybe figure out who you could talk to that maybe could help you make those choices. But what do you need to confess? Who do you need to confess to? And then there's one more question. Will you do what you know you need to do? The good news is that um, if history is any indication, a move to confess is a move towards life. And genuine confession almost always leads to genuine life change. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us even and especially when we are unlovable. Thank you for having a dream for our lives that is greater than we can even imagine. And we confess that we often settle for less. So we thank you for grace that meets us where we are, but doesn't leave us where we are. And thank you for showing us the path to a better life. I pray you give us courage as we examine the lives that we're living and maybe even more so courage when we take the step that we know we need to take. As we do, I pray that we would find you faithful and we would find ourselves moving towards a better life here and now. We thank you for Jesus, for all of his life and for what it means for us now and into eternity. And we bless you. We ask your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your son, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.